Hi, I'm Pete Price, and this really is a special podcast because this is Billy Butler interviewing me. Now, remember, if you subscribe, you'll get all our podcasts because it's free. If you haven't heard me interviewing Billy, check it out after listening to this. Sit back, enjoy. Billy Butler interviewing Pete Price. Peter, it's great to be here with you. It's not easy because I, I think in, in all the research I do, I try and research for everybody what I do, but you've been down so many different roads. Yeah. And you've changed, you've adapted to so many different things that uh, sometimes, me, me jotting sometimes don't go together when, when, when I look at them. So we'll start off like you did with me at the very beginning, right? And your childhood wasn't much different than mine, except the fact that you were adopted, you see. Nobody wanted me, but you were adopted. So that's how you, your life started. Your man was 32, I think she was, wasn't she? And you live with your mum and dad. And um, you, 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 your dad had a good job, didn't he? No, he owned his own company. He had um, After the war, he had this idea of uh, making paving slabs, which was very clever, but unfortunately he was an alcoholic and a wife beater, um, so he lost everything. Oh, and a gambler. Lost everything. And, in fact, the yard was Car Lane at the back of Hoylake, uh, near the uh, municipal golf course. And uh, he did really well, and we had a beautiful home in Darman's Green called Vine Cottage. And when he went bankrupt, um, we lost everything. Um, and we moved down to um, Bridge Road, so we were down there. The worst thing I ever did, Billy, and I've, I've, I've said about this before, but it, it, it's hard to say. I was ashamed that we'd lost the money, and mm. I used to get people drop me off at the Vine Cottage, and I'd climb over the wall and go to where I lived. And, you know, I was so ashamed that we'd lost that money, but I was so ashamed when I got older and realised how my mother had put herself out for me. And that made me even more ashamed. Well, both of our mums were the same, really, because my mum, I, I can picture my mum so many times sitting on the, the edge of the chair with pennies in front of her yeah. and a piece of paper and totting up what, what she spent that week yeah. to see how much she'll have left. Yeah. You know, and it's only later on in life when you become a parent yourself, you appreciate the difficulty it must have been when you say to your mum, can you give me five minutes to go to the pictures? Yeah. You know, and if she doesn't give her, you get very angry. You don't realise how much that fight must have meant to her because they balanced the books that week. I mean, I don't know how, how well off you were. I would imagine because you lived where you lived, you, you, you were OK, you weren't short of money. Uh, my mum was short. Yeah, she was very worried, didn't know where... She wasn't on benefits. There was no benefits that I knew about in those days. Um, and she struggled. She really struggled. Mm. She did without. Like most real mums, I got the decent food. She did without. So, And I, I always remember when I got older, she said, it's time for you to pay housekeeping when I was working. And I couldn't believe how dare she take housekeeping off me. Then you get older and you realise that that housekeeping was spent on the first meal. It was a right. token. It taught me so much. Then you go out in the real world and have your own place and then you've got to buy your own toilet rolls and your bleach and your mops and buckets and everything. So she was a great woman to teach me uh, about life. You know, she, she gave me so much in life and to adopt me. And also, I... I found out she tried to uh, commit suicide once because she was lost 
because she didn't know where, what to do because of money, etc. And she suddenly realised th- that she had me and that she turned it around and she made it work. And by the way, later on in life, she paid off most of my father's debts. And did you have any kind of a relationship with your father? Uh, I, I remember him leaving. Apparently, um, he never touched me. Uh, ever. Um, but I remember him leaving. I was coming over the bridge at West Kirby, which I love. The bridge now is like, it's like when you went to junior school and you see the toilets and you go, my bottom was never that small. Well, that bridge was huge. I was a little boy and that bridge was huge walking over that bridge every day. But when I was 10, I was walking up. I don't know why it stayed with me, but I was walking up. He was walking up with a suitcase. I said, where are you going? He said, I'm going to see your nan in South Wales. And I never saw him again. And then the next time I saw him, we were on the beach at West Kirby. It was um, uh, making sandcastles and everything. And I went to get an ice cream. And a man was standing there. It was years later. And a man was standing there. And um, he gave me an envelope. Uh, sorry, he gave me a matchbox. And he said, um, give that to your mum. I said, who are you? He said, I'm your dad. And uh, I went down. He disappeared. And I gave her the matchbox. And she ripped it up. I got all the pieces and tried to glue it back together, but she did rip it up. She didn't want anything to do with him. But there's no emotional memories of your father at, at all? None at all. Not one single thing. Not one single thing. So what, bearing in mind what, 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 what you were like in the future, makes me ask you, what were you like at school? I mean, knowing what you became and what you've done, I would imagine you were the, were you the, were you the clown of the class? I wasn't I wasn't a clown of the class. I I mean we lived in Bridge Road, so we had the shop there, um, and the Orisdale Road School was just around the corner. And the first day, I don't think I've ever told this in public. I was given a penknife for my birthday, and somebody tried to take on my first day of school, and somebody tried to take it off at me, and I stuck it in them, and ran home. So I, I stuck a penknife in some whoever he was, and thank goodness I didn't do any damage. No, yeah, so just two years later, you would have gone the papers about that. But you were too young then. <laughs> <laughs> You're trying to say I'm publicity hungry. So oh, we'll get on to that later. Clever, <laughs> clever. <laughs> so I went back and I was that. I wasn't a clown at school, but I wanted to be in show business. And the first thing I ever did was at the school concert singing Tiddly Winky Woo Winky with Boo. two dancing yeah. girls. And then I took piano lessons. And sadly, I had a bad piano teacher who taught me wrong and I, I never was good. And I did the Dan Busters March also at Assembly. And I'll never forget me Paul at Lands trying to stretch to the octave and they wouldn't read and I was really struggling. I always wanted to be show business, but yeah. then when I got a bit older... But there must have been the reason. I mean, what? I've always thought that it was the first round of applause you got for something and you thought to yourself, hey, this is good. They're liking me then. I, you know, I, this this sounds like a good business to be in. No, it wasn't that, Billy, because I didn't know at that age... I think in the deep down within my in my soul, if there is a soul, because I was fighting my sexuality later on, I think the the cover-up was to be the class clown, to be mm. uh, liked and want to be liked. So I think maybe when I was younger, maybe I didn't know, I don't know, but maybe I didn't know and that was the cover-up. Uh, I tried, well, hard at school. I was dyslexic and, of course, we didn't know what dyslexic was. The teachers were fabulous with me at junior school. Uh, they were horrible with me at secondary modern school. So junior school, they were great. And Miss, Miss Owens... 
uh, I cried when I left and I, I held to the railings and I wouldn't wouldn't let go. And my mum had a teapot with a strawberry on. It was 12 and 6 and I paid off all my pocket money to give Miss Owens that to say goodbye. That's a nice memory. Yeah. Did you have any plans for what you're going to do? Because I know you didn't pass, you, you never passed the um, 11 plus, did no, you? No, I didn't get to Caldy, so I went to a Holy Parade school. See, this was the sort of things that upset me. I laugh about this now, but you can't laugh about it in those days. But me mum was struggling. You had to have a uniform, school uniforms. People listening now will relate. I mean, the cost of school uniforms now. Um, but I was bullied quite a lot, so I've got my school uniform, and I walked to um, Hoyland. Were you bullied verbally or physically? Physically. Mm. Um, so I would walk to, um, to save my bus fare so I could buy some sweets. So you used to walk from Bridge Road uh, by the Municipal Golf Club, which was a cinder path, it's now a path, and then into Hoylake to Secondary Modern. But... I was uh, thrown in the bunker twice in my brand new um, uh, 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 school jacket and the bunker was full of water and my mother went crazy and then we got it sorted and then two weeks later I was thrown in the tide because, uh, you can laugh because I laugh now, but it wasn't funny at the time. When you think of the cost of well, salt on a, a yeah. uniform, you know, and you had to wear uniforms in those days. Thank, I think it was one of the biggest mistakes they ever made, stopping people u- uniform, because yeah. it, it takes you away from rich and poor and gives you discipline. And so, but so I was bullied, yeah. But then I, I surrounded myself with a nice little crowd, so they protected me as well. And, and, and that was something you, you carried with you when you'd left school. Did any of them friends, when you left school, did you follow on with any of them friends? I've, I've followed a couple of friends, but I, I used them in school. They weren't my type of people. Um, we went in different directions. They kept, you know, they kept saying, well, you, you think you're something special and you think you're going to do well. I am going to do well, but I had to do well. I was adopted. I was given away. I had to prove something. I mean, they said to you, you think you're something special. Do, yeah. you, do you know why they thought you thought you were something special? Well, because I used to be outrageously dressed. I used to, when we went to the YMCA to see Jerry Marsden at the age of 15 and 16 uh, on a Wednesday night after we'd been to the Lantern Coffee Bar for a frothy coffee the for Lantern. one and six, where Mrs Middleton said, drink that, get another one or clear off. Now it's up to you. And I was always... Um, I put it about that I was a, a real womanizer, and that was to cover up my sexuality. So I had lots of girlfriends, uh, lots of girlfriends, and um, the guys didn't like that at all. So who influenced you on the way up? Because obviously there must have been somebody you saw who you said, that's what I want to be like. That's a difficult one, that actually, Billy, because there wasn't anybody, there actually wasn't anybody, it, it, I... I, when I became a DJ, which we'll talk about later, but it, it was when I was at the Shakespeare, I started to get people that I wanted to be. But when I was younger, it, well, there wasn't... The first panto I saw was Dickie Valentine at the Empire, and um, I always have a, a block with this lady's name, um, and I've forgotten her. She was a big, big star. And I went, I want to do panto one day. So Dickie Valentine was the first panto I ever saw. Um... But there was nobody that I was trying to be like. You'll be 12 in 1958. And like everybody else, you must have been affected by the rock and roll. Oh, I was. I mean, we were at the YMCA. I was a dancer. I mean, and the Biddlecombe twins, I used to take two girls, you know. I mean, I was... Uh, and I, I won... I came third... No, third didn't win. Came third in the twist competition. Uh, music was incredibly important. My first record I ever bought was Lonnie Donegan, Putting on the Style. Uh, 
Sorry, does your chewing gum lose its flavour? The bedpost overnight. My mum bought me a record player, one yeah. that played five records. Wow, was I popular. Nobody else had one of them. <laughs> <laughs> and if you left the arm off and just play one continuously, yes, yes. that you'll be the best. You know. <laughs> so you were into rock and roll? I was into the Merseybeat music more than rock and roll. I wasn't a big Elvis fan ever, apart from it's now or never. And the only reason now or never was so important to me, uh, my auntie Dot, who went to to live in Australia, was my favourite aunt. Um, she went the day that came number one, and that stayed with me forever, never. I loved Cliff Richard. I loved Cliff Richard. And then started getting music, and of course met you down for the first time at the cavern, and sagged off school to go to the cavern, I mean, and nobody can ever, ever take that raw music away. Forget all this electric garbage. I mean... Your mic's on, get on and do it, and that was it. And you were raw, and Scylla was raw, and I was Jerry's biggest fan, Jerry Marsden. Forget the Beatles, I was a Jerry fan. I was a Jerry yeah, fan as well, yeah. actually. I thought Jerry was sensational, absolutely. He filled the YMCA in Hoylake. Beatles didn't, he filled it. Big Three filled it with Scylla singing Fever. Yeah, I remember doing a gig at Mere Hall. Do you remember Mere Hall? Yeah, I do indeed. As well, they used to have, they used to have bands on there. Mm-hmm. Big, I saw the Big Three there. But you never thought, you never had the intentions of joining a band no. as you went to show business? Um, no, but um, I did pretend to be in a band and there were some photographs when I started to get into publicity. Did you go with your pretend girlfriends as <laughs> yeah, well? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it was in Eastbourne and I've got a, a, somewhere I've got a jacket with me with a guitar which I can't play and I was in a, a band in, in Eastbourne uh, and it wasn't. <laughs> so the dressing up which followed you throughout your life actually. Yeah. That started. I mean, to me, to me, that's nothing. I mean, I saw people dress funnily at the cavern. You see people dress funny around town. That didn't mean anything to me. Mm. But um, people form an opinion of you, as far as you're concerned, by the way you dress. Well, because you didn't follow the. Uh, yeah, because don't forget it. When we were both younger, Bill, there was fashion. There was fashion. Uh, uh, um, that sense. Uh, fashion. What am I trying to say? Um, uh, Eras. Say again? Eras. Fashion yeah, era, yeah. Again. So I mean, you, everybody wore the Cuban heels. Everybody wore the... Yeah. So it was not now fashions all over the place. i tell you a lovely story about this, which I, it does make me laugh, but it was terrible. Do you remember the old stiff collars? Of course. With the stud? From Woolies. Right. Well, you get a packet of them, cardboard right. ones. So there I am, <laughs> changed after school, outside the cavern, and uh, I've got one of the collars on, and it's pouring with rain, and I've got my jacket, I have this phenomenal brown jacket with PP on it, gold P on two pockets, and I've got this thing, and it's killing me. Anyway, it pours with rain, and I'm soaked. Get inside, and as you know, it was very hot in there. Dancing away and dancing away. <laughs> Next minute, the collar starts to dry out <laughs> and shrinks. And I think it was Paddy that was trying to cut it off with a knife because I was choking. I'll never forget that. I was in a terrible state. I was in a terrible state. Never had me bowl of soup that day. Five five collars for a few bob it was. And it was dead stiff. You only wore them once because of the cardboard. Absolutely. I went through a a period of wearing a cravat. Oh, yes, I went through cravats. Oh, yes, I thought I was Errol Flynn. Definitely went through And had a smoking jacket. Oh, I looked a prat. Absolute prat. Do you know I went out once with a sword, an actual sword, 
and um, a, a belt and everything. And I thought I was Dan D'Artagnan. I really... Could you imagine going out into a club now with a sword? <laughs> it was a real sword. I mean, it was a real sword. No, it was a real, a proper rapier. See, we're, was, we're both a bit outlandish. I mean, when I used to work at a club in Wigan, we, we'd stop. At, I used to have a cloak. I used to have a cloak and, and a top hat and a, a, a top hat. And Chris Wharton, who was my driver at the time, we used to stop at a pub, and Chris would go in and announce me. Say, ladies and gentlemen, it's Billy Butler. Nobody in place knew me. But we'd walk in and have a drink, and then he'd say, Tom, Billy is going now. We get back in the car and drive to the Paradise Club. <laughs> but that was us creating an image. You know, yes, we turned out to both have talent, but you also had to have this... I mean, I was on holiday, never told this. I was on holiday in Turkey. I went into a disco... Uh, the most incredible disco I've ever seen in my life. The actual equipment I had a photograph sent, sent it back to the Echo. Sorry, can't come home and work in Turkey. <laughs> and I wasn't. I was on holiday, but I had a photo taken. So your next step, basically, is, 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 is you decided to become a chef? No, my next step was my mum said, and I listened to her, do me a favour, get a trade. Get yeah. a trade and then go for it. And I actually listened to her. And I wish, and I've got one friend uh, who is an actor, but he's also got a business. He's got his head screwed on because he likes nice things and he knows how hard that job is. As it happens, he's doing very well, but he needs. So I took my mum, mum's advice. And um, so I didn't know whether to be a chef or a hairdresser. So I went to work for Peter College. Got the job, weekends, and went to Catering College, Birkenhead Tech, Food Technology Department, with Mr. Yonkir, who hated me, the uh, principal, who used to take the mickey out of me all the time. Anyway, I passed my exams for the first time ever, and I thought, do I go in catering or do I go in hairdressing? And I decided, um, well, I got sent home several times. I got sent home once for being overly dressed. How you'd send a hairdresser home for being outrageously dressed. And I was also sent home once because this woman came up and said, he's washed my ears. And Peter Collins said, why have you washed his ears? Why have you washed that lady's ears? I went, they were rotten, absolutely rotten. So I got sent home for that. So I thought, what do I do? Do I become a, a hairdresser or a caterer? And I went uh, and gave up hairdressing because... I did three years for hairdressing, but I gave it up because I was sick to death of nagging women talking about the husbands. And where did I finish up? A late-night phone-in with nagging women complaining about the husbands. So that didn't work very well. Billy Butler here. Pete Price is my guest. And very soon I'll be, t I'll be telling Pete about the first time I actually saw his name in print and hated him. So we'll be getting along to that soon, sooner or later. But we, we, just before we left, we were talking about um, you taking the decision to become a chef. Yep. You know, and... Before that, though, you, 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 when you were 12, you, you, you got your first feelings that physically I don't feel the same yeah. as, as other people. Yeah. I, think, I think it was earlier, actually, Billy, but it, 12 seems to stick in your mind and everybody you ask, an awful lot of people will say 12 is an age. And in those days, um, being a homosexual, because, of course, the word gay didn't exist, was a criminal offence. Yeah. Um, it was illegal and you could go to prison and there were people in prison for 10 years um, for just being gay. So to fight your sexuality was scary. But I went to my doctor's, Dr. Lansley, 
uh, who's no longer with us, in West Kirby, and I went and said, I'm a homosexual. And he laughed at me and said, everybody goes through these stages, you mm. grow out of it. And I went back at 14, <clears throat> and I said to him, uh, I'm not growing out of it. And he prescribed me Valium. And I'm delighted to say, I don't know where it came from, but I actually put them down the toilet. If I'd have started on Valium, I don't think I'd be here today. No, the thing, almost, I must ask you this as well. To me, you've never been, um, to me, you've never been an obvious gay person. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's maybe something in my eyes, I don't know, but you've never been an obvious, because you you do look at people and say, I oh, know he's gay. Yeah. You were never like that to me. So when, why did you get picked on at school? Because they saw something, because maybe I was slightly effeminate. But I've never, I've never been in the gay scene. I've been around the gay scene and I've dipped into it, but I've never been on the gay... I've never wanted a life of being gay and just gay people and gay dentists and gay... I just want what we're doing now. There's four people in this room and we're just four human beings getting on well. So that's what I wanted. They, they saw something in me. Uh, maybe, I mean, I was having, messing about with a couple of guys at school. So maybe word got out or somebody caught us or somebody saw us. You had to be so, so careful. And it was frightening. And even today, and this is why I say over and over again, People who are gay should come out when they're ready. They should yep. never be outed. Because once it's out there, it's there for the rest of their lives and will never go away. But you did explore. I mean, you, I, mean I did. I mean, we, we treated gays with a bit of humour when I was younger. Yeah. You know, we, we, to me, there was nothing, you know, they're, they're a strange person, nothing like that. I found them amusing because I, I used to go on the magic clock. Mm-hmm. And go, go go and see Sadie in the other bar as well. And we thought they were amusing. I thought they were very amusing people. And that's all. Yeah. I didn't disrespect them or feel any antagonistic against them. But you were around show business, so you had a different attitude. There were queer bashers out every yeah. night. Yeah. There was queer bashers out. There was people blackmailing many, many gay people and lesbians. And many committed suicide because they were being blackmailed and because of fear. And because of fear of going to prison. I mean, I was going out with girls. Um, um, to try and cover up. Were you uh, nearly engaged? Who, who I, was, yeah. I was engaged to a, a to a girl called Vivian, uh, who came down to Eastbourne when I was working there and brought "Sealed with a Kiss" the original version and said, "You know, uh, we're now in love." Now, but there's something else happened, and I've never told this publicly. She lived in Janet Street in Liverpool, which was up um, just slightly out of. I don't know Liverpool well that way. And it was a, a two up and two down, which is where I came from. And I went up to see her because she never, I never met her mum for a long, long time and she wouldn't introduce me. So I went and knocked on the door and she locked herself in a her bedroom. She was ashamed of where she lived. And I was so angry because of what I'd been through. So I actually finished with her because of that. But I thought that was very harsh myself. I thought, there's a girl who thinks so much of you. She doesn't want your opinion of her to change. And you put, give her the push. It didn't make sense. No, because I, I, I know you are an emotional person. No, but I gave her the push. 
because all of a sudden she was ashamed of where she lived. So how can I supply what she wants? I mean, and, and if I'm not successful, is she going to be ashamed of where I live? Don't forget, I'd gone through all that pain myself and then come to terms with it. And then I go to her house and her mother was visibly upset at the way she wouldn't speak to me. And then she tried to make up for it. She got married in the end, lived in South Africa and very happily married. So she kept telling me twice a year. And you bought a ring? Uh, I bought her a ring and kept it myself. It was quite nice, actually. I just changed the set and... <laughs> so... <laughs> and did the relationship become physical? Yeah, oh, yeah. Uh. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, 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 I've um, I've dabbled. <laughs> oh, no, I've dabbled. Yeah, I've dabbled. I, I, oh, I dabbled with the, somebody on the front cover of Vogue and then met is, a... Is that something that's prevalent in gays? Hang on, I've just got to tell you this. I, I, I dabbled with somebody on the front cover of Vogue and then met a brother and got rid of her and uh, went after the brother. <laughs> that's usually one of your stage yeah. gags. You always <laughs> ask if you got a brother. But that, no, Yeah, but that is true, and that's how it happened. That Right, ladies and gentlemen, I used to walk on stage and still do, and I go, you're gorgeous to a woman. If you got a brother, that's where the line came from. She had a brother. <laughs> OK, we're not still into your public career, but let me tell you about something that happened in 1968. Right. In 1968, I'd been DJ at the Cavern from 1964, mm. and then I played at the Cavern with my group in 62 and 63, and it was pretty well established. And I remember walking through town and seeing this advert for a massive show at the stadium. I think it was called Kaleidoscope. Yep. And there it was in big letters... Your comp, your DJ, Pete Price. Yep. And I thought, why is Pete Price the DJ? He doesn't know all that much about music. He doesn't know all Pink Floyd and all people like that. Yep. Why is he the DJ? I was really annoyed. Yep. I'll tell you what happened about that. The reason, first of all, while I was a DJ, was I was working for Radio Merseyside at the time, and the BBC had, had put the show on. What happened was, which was remarkable, I was only supposed to do a couple of acts. So I was introducing a couple of acts. Because it was a big bill. Yeah. The big names coming from London didn't arrive because there was a thick fog. They couldn't come up by plane. They couldn't come up by car. And I virtually compared the whole day. And I introduced Pink Floyd. Can't believe that I worked with Pink Floyd. And I was delighted when I heard they couldn't come up. And I just made it. But you're right. I've never been a big music man, Billy. And I'll never lie about that. Oh, you'd have your pretend to be. Yeah, music is an interruption on my show because it's a speech show. But I love music. I love music. But I certainly haven't got your knowledge in any shape or form. In fact, if you listen to my shows, I've never, ever introduced the song. I just put it on. We'll never say we'll who it was. We'll come to that in a moment All as right. well, because, <laughs> you know, we, we, we've got you as a chef, right? You're working hard as a chef. You even go on a ship and you work on board the ship. Yep, and for you know, my sexuality then, had a bad time on there. Bad time. Was there anybody close to you then? No. Uh, I was scared witless, absolutely witless. One of my favourite stories on the ship um, was when... So I was on the Empress of Canada and we used to get the ship uh, and bootle dock 
and then come up to pick the passengers up. And that, it, that was when Liverpool was alive. Oh, my word, that dark area. was. Yeah. I've just gone cold thinking of it. Thousands of people and just amazing. Anyway, I'd passed my exams and I'd got this job on the ship. It was the greatest lesson I've ever learned. I was up my own backside. I was so... I'm Pete Price. <laughs> and I, I just thought, you know, no one's going to show me. So we get there. And what I didn't know was... So I'd, I'd got my stuff and I thought, I'll just go and have a breath of fresh air up stuff. And there's millions of streamers. And I didn't know what was going on. And what it is, is they throw streamers from the boat down to the passengers, uh, from the passengers down to the people on the docks. And then when the boat sails, the streamers break and it's the lifeline because people are emigrating. And of course, in those days when you emigrated, you never saw them again. It wasn't, there was phones, it was terrible. So I'm up on deck, crying my eyes out with streamers and everything. And the chefs are looking for me. <laughs> And I went down and they went, oh, hello, where have you been? I said, oh, the stream is off the do you want a cup of coffee? And I went, oh, yes, one sugar, to which I got the verbal abuse. He went, get some, and every four-letter word was used, get some eggs fried now, and I got a frying pan. Four eggs, I'm cooking. We had 2,000 passengers on board. He went and... This table we're at is about the size of the actual frying pan. We must have had a thousand eggs in there. I've never experienced anything like it in my life. And then the fish chef came over and he said to, to the dispensary, give me a pint of uh, um, shandy. And so I went over and I went, I'll have a pint of shandy as well. And she went, we don't serve staff. I went, you just served that over there, and if it's good enough for him, well, it's good enough for me. He slapped me, he picked me up, he threw me physically into the uh, the sink where they wash the pans, which is also as big as this table, and I'm swimming amongst all these pans. I never did that again. It was the greatest lesson of humility I ever learned. I never became big time again. But one thing about you as a chef, Pete, as, as you were in the rest of your career as well, you weren't happy in just being a chef. You wanted to work, so you, you did a lot of you did a lot of chefing at people's private houses. I didn't. You, you went out looking for work, whereas yeah. most chefs these days they'll settle in the job they've got. You went out looking for work, as you as you've done in all parts of your career. But yeah. you went out looking for work, and you worked at some really big people's houses. I did indeed. You knew the right steps to take. Well, I, I wanted I wanted to make money. You know, I just wanted to make money, and I wanted to make a name for myself. One story I have told the. Don't think I've ever told this. That's another one you've never told. That's, that's 15 stories for an exclusive uh, to so much. Hopefully, hopefully. Um, so I did, it was um, uh, the Biddles, who I danced with, uh, who were amazing. It was their 21st. And I, Mr. P. Price, they wanted a Hawaiian night. So I said, we'll cook a suckling, kit, a suckling pig in the garden. So uh, we dug a hole and we got leaves and we cooked the suckling pig and we left it overnight. They all went to bed, ready for the party next day. I came back, dug it up because I knew it wasn't cooking properly, went home, stuck it in the oven, put it under the grill, put it back in, and then come in and said, voila! And he went, God, that's wonderful. And I didn't, I did it in my mother's oven. <laughs> I was in a terrible state and took it back on my scooter because I didn't have a car in those days, so... Where did you eat in Liverpool that like you admired? 
Because I know you mentioned the Porto once or twice. In, in Porto, my... yes, but there's only one restaurant to eat. There's only one restaurant to eat in Liverpool because it was just so flash. And it was in London Road, Samson and Barlow's, yeah. with the chickens hanging in the window yeah. and the red ch- red and white check tablecloths. I can see it now. I, I, I thought I'd died and gone to heaven. That was a restaurant to me. Food hanging in the window. Never seen anything like it. I told you I never saw you there. I used to go there for a bag of chicken really? bits. Oh. <laughs> you got a bag of chicken bits with legs and things like that in it, you know what I mean? But you're right, it was a prestigious place. And then I discovered the Rembrandt. Wow, that was amazing. Well, the name itself would put me off yeah. going in. Well, up the stairs, yeah. and it was a class place. But the cabin was good for food. We had a chef called Colin Pierce, who, believe it or not, I bumped into the other day. I could not believe it. I was so thrilled. He had a mask on, and he said, Do you know, and straight away when I realised... We did, we had three restaurants, we were doing basket food, and we were doing one restaurant downstairs and one restaurant upstairs, and I worked with Franco, who had the catering at the Continental, and, and he was the one that taught me to swear in Italian. Well, you fancied him as well, Franco, didn't you? No, I didn't. He's told everyone that. I fancied Alfonso, oh, Franco's so. friend. Let's get the right one. <laughs> <laughs> Franco always said, you always wanted me, with a few four-letter words thrown between. <laughs> In fact, he's just asked me out for lunch, still going, still playing golf three times a week. So, so uh, were you happy with life at this particular time? Don't know if I've... Uh, was your ambition still in? Did, did you still think, hang on, Pete Price, you can go a bit further than this? I, I, I was happy with working in, in, in the cabin club, which, by the way, I always... I remember. haven't got you working there yet. Oh, sorry. Oh, well, wherever I was working. No, I wasn't happy then, no. I wasn't happy on the ships at all. I was very, 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 very seasick. I had that terrible seasick. And we had no... uh, So how did the cabin come along? Because that's very important in your career, the cabin. Well, that was after I I got... uh, Or or I walked out of the job in uh, Worthing and didn't have a job. And then my Auntie Mac, her daughter, lived next door to Ian Bell and said they were looking uh, for an assistant chef. And that's how I got that. And I met Brian Gilbertson... Ian Bell and Mrs Windsor, who were the three owners of the cabin club. And when I worked there, I'll never forget working, walking in it, and it smelt of prawn cocktails. And the food in those days, New Year's Eve for 12, and I've still got the menus, uh, 21 and 6, was prawn cocktail, steak and chips, Black Forest Gatto. And we were the dogs. Mm. So loved it. I mean, as I've said to you before when you spoke to me last week, the cabin was a mysterious venue to me and to most people. The people who went to the cabin never seemed to go to the cabin because it had a legend that you can't get in. You couldn't. She she refused the Beatles. She would not let Paul McCartney in because his hair was too long. And I used to say to her, do you know who you'd knock back? And you didn't mess with Mrs Windsor. Didn't need Dorman. She was the door woman. Little, uh, well-built Jewess. And she was... No one got past her. I came in once, round the corner on my scooter, come down the road, slid on the... uh, um, cobbles, fell against the wall, smashed my scooter, covered in blood, and she comes, opens the door, get down, have you seen the time? I'm covered in blood. She didn't care. So was the client, did the clientele live up to the fact that you couldn't get in? Oh, yes, absolutely. Friday night was the night of nights. Some of the most amazing, there's a lady called Shelley Noonan, who now lives um, in, not Barbados, uh, one of the islands, I'll think of it in a second, and she still is in touch with me. She's an 80-year-old lady now, and she was glamorous behind. In fact, I 
got a bit turned on by her. She was somebody that um, Bahamas she lives in. And uh, no, it was the place the, the Kierans would go there, June and Austin Wilson. The people of Liverpool from Walton and, and, and mm. businessmen and and, and uh, the people, the... the um, uh, the car specialists, uh, Voss Motors, Rolls Royce. It was a, a click that was fantastic. Really was fantastic. Was it, was, it, was, it, was it a five nights a week club? Five nights a week, yeah, absolutely. And we had a jazz trio there, Billy Ellis, who the blind was pianist. blind, yeah. yeah. Uh, who used to play cards after work. And in Braille. Uh, in Braille and cheated because there were Braille on both sides, so he cheated. He was always cheating. And I always remember uh, it was a bass player, so it, the party's over. Boom, 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 boom. One night they went well and I said, why don't we have music in between? Records. Now, you know, because you've been in the business years, you didn't dance to records years ago. You danced to the live music and had a rest when the records were on. I said, we should have records on. They said, well, how does it work? And I said, well, you know, you just put records on. And they, they said, well, you do it. And I said, oh, I'll do it. So we had one turntable, 10 records, chef's outfit with the old-fashioned chef's out. And I was shouting, you know, come on, get up, you Party, party. I can imagine it. Yeah. It was mental. It was mental. But they got up, and it started. It actually started from then. So I mean, you had, your turntable was just an ordinary turntable. Yeah, you must have had a PA and stuff like that, obviously, to plug into. It had a speaker. So you didn't talk to the people. You just acted Shouted like a loon, like a loon. Yeah, because I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know what a disco was. You were the first DJ I had ever heard of. Nobody, I'd not heard of anybody else. I just heard of the fabulous Mardi Gras and Billy Butler. And um, you were just there. And I thought, well, you but know. But I couldn't get in the cabin. No, nobody, <laughs> but nobody could. None of my friends could. They wouldn't let my friends. They really were very strict. But it worked for many, many years. It worked. They had the first dance floor in glass. As far as we know, in Liverpool, they had a bar with bottles, with the lights in the bottles. The food was great. We had, when the shows were on, I mean, Freddie Starr and Mike Yarwood had a battle in there once. And I mean a battle. And Freddie won, hands down, and Mike never came back. The Bachelors were in there. The K-Sisters were in there. Anybody in town used to come in, but she wouldn't let the Beatles in. Well, great. Let's make a note of this, will you? Um... 10, 10.57 before a name drop. This is a record, this, I think. 10.57, three minutes, three minutes to 11, only one name drop. Well, and, didn't you but put they, it... they came about, about six of them in one go there. Didn't you put it somewhere that uh, you've given up after 204? 2004, <laughs> 2004 it was. 2004. <laughs> so, so and, and obviously meeting famous people and seeing the way they lived, yeah. that lit a, a fire in you again. Yeah, not famous people, money people, rather than famous mm. people, because the Wilsons were the first richest people I ever met, and I adored them. I loved those people so much. June and Austin Wilson and Cynthia, and they owned the Army-Navy stores, and um, um, uh, also Starways um, Airline, the airline yeah. and they were tremendous, and they owned Cuckoo Lane. They lived there, and then Danielle married Graham Souness. That was his first wife. So they were important to me, and their click. So I would entertain for them, I got into that, and also cooked for them, and in fact one of my favourite stories, they had this 
unbelievable house, 13 bedrooms, uh, bulletproof windows built in Spain. And it was that was over the top. So there is a shell. Picture this, ladies and gentlemen, um, a shell, like um, a, a, an oyster. So the shell opens electrically and closes. That's the bed. Now, as it opens, the bed turns down, the floor opens and the bath is there. So you slide into the bath. You got the picture right. So I'm staying there, and everyone liked to drink in those days. And I'm staying there, and all I hear was, help, help. So I knocked on the door and went, you're right, come in, come in. The lid had stuck, so June and Austin were in the bed for 20 hours. We kept putting bottles of whiskey in. They could not get out of this. Always remember. And I was cooking for them the next day, and they had a table that seated 30, and it went round electrical electrically, and when June had had a drink, she pressed the button, double speed, you never got your dinner, whoop, dead, it's gone again. Oh, missed it again. Starving when you left. So basically, the cabin then, you're abandoning your chefs, and concentrated on the DJ. Well, the story is, and uh, I was earning, I love telling this, because it's crazy, 15 quid a week I was earning. I was working every hour God sends. Like you, Billy, I'm a grafter. So every hour gone said, running three restaurants, and I was getting more and more responsibility. <clears throat> Excuse me. The DJ was going well, and they said, we'd like you to be the DJ. And I went, pardon? You want me to put records on? Yeah. For a living? Yeah. So I went and told my mother. She cried her eyes out. Can't believe you've been in catering college all those years, and you're talking about what's going on. This is that. She really cried. And I said, she said, what is the job? I said, putting records on. She just cried. So I thought, you can't ask money for putting records on. You just can't. So I went to the meeting, and I'm not good at getting money sorted. I am no good. I need an agent. I'm no good. So they're sitting there, and they went, how much do you want? I went, oh, well, you know. <laughs> Remember, I was earning 15 quid a week. No, I just, oh, well, you know, just... Uh, <laughs> come on, how much do you want? I said, well, yeah. Well, we thought 20 quid, and I went... What? What? So they went 25 and that's the last <laughs> offer. And the first week I got £25 for putting records on and not smelling the chips and I was so embarrassed trying to get the money. I sh was so embarrassed. I was never embarrassed again. But... No, your next move really astounded me because you you were very happy at the uh, at the mm. cabin. Things were going really well for you. You made a name for yourself. Yep. People were talking about the peat price and the cabin in the same breath. And then you went to the Swan. Yeah, there couldn't have been two different places than the cabin and the Swan. Yeah, what my th logic was. We're talking about the Swan, Swan in, in Wood Street, in which Wood is Street. still which is still there, which which is a biker. Yeah, it's a bikers club now. But we had the steering wheel cocktail bar upstairs. And what my thoughts were, I could work for the Kierans because Brian was their stepson, so he was part of the family. So, And I thought if I worked there, I could get some DJing back. That was my logic behind it. And also I wanted them to know, I wanted them to miss me. A little bit, mm -hmm. you know. Um, I was going to show the cabin that they really needed you. Yeah, you know, <laughs> just, I, I, I thought I was being clever. I didn't know what I was doing. seriously didn't know what I was doing because I was too young. But I had a great time, and that was the first ever cocktail bar, apart from the Adelphi, 
the French restaurant, uh, where you could get cocktails. And we had racing drivers from all over the world come there. It was the most wonderful pub. And you could get the best pint of bass downstairs out of a barrel. You still can, I think. Yeah, it, it was just tremendous. Um, and some of them, and then I made, started getting stories in the papers because I served uh, scampi in a basket. Nobody was doing that. Um, squid in a basket. Um, and uh, I also learned a big lesson there. There was a guy called Rocky who, and I've forgotten Rocky's second name. I think, sadly, he's not with us any longer. Oh, he's not. No, right. So you know who I'm talking about. Rocky came in one day, and I've got, I wore the chef's outfit. I was the assistant manager, but I wore the chef's outfit. And he came in. He said, what are you doing? I said, I'm having some lunch. He said, I said, you don't want some, do you? He said, what are you, I said, chicken and chips. He said, I'll have some chicken and chips. I said, what are you drinking? I said, Brandy Ale- I always remember this, Brandy Alexandra. And he went, uh, it's, it looks nice. I said, do you want one? So I gave him one, and uh, I then gave him the bill. And he went, what are you giving me the bill for? You asked me to have them. And he never paid me. He came out my wages. I never did that again. Every lesson I've ever learned, Billy, has been a hard one. Billy Butler, my guest is Pete Price, which is going to chat about his very, very long and continuing career. Pete Price, adopted, gay, beaten up at school, make a great plot for Coronation Street. <laughs> Just going back a little bit, Pete, uh, by this time you're doing pretty well for yourself money-wise, and... and were you still living with your mum? Yeah, yeah, living with my mum a lot. Uh, purely because she didn't want me to leave. Yeah. Uh, the only reason I ever moved out, <coughs> excuse me, was to buy a place was because I knew one day when she died, I didn't want to be there. I wanted to do, I wanted to be with her, yeah. but I didn't want to be there because I, I had an incredible relationship with her. Although we were two different people, she couldn't understand anything I did. She, she was a shy, nice lady, just dead ordinary. Look Luckily, saw me on telly before I died, but uh, before she died, I should say. Um, but I, I, I didn't want to live there. Uh, but I, I had everything. I loved me house. Well, did you live in fear of her finding out? I lived in fear of her finding out about me being gay, and mm. it happened Thursday night. A Thursday night at three o'clock in the morning, I came home from the cabin club. She'd found a letter. She hadn't rooted, by the way. It had fallen out. It was a stupid letter. Because what I used to do, in a nutshell, I used to be at the cabin club and the bosses were fantastic with me over my sexuality. They knew I had a problem. And I used to go to London, so I saved my days up and they'd let me go on long weekends. It's interesting the way you put that. They knew I had a problem. But it was a problem in those days, because mm. it was a problem. We didn't know anything else. It was a problem. It was a criminal offence, so it was a problem. Um, so they allowed me to uh, save my days up, and I'd go to London. And it was 12 and 6, my first ever train ticket. And I got off the train at Euston Station, put my coat on, on my shoulders, got my cigarette holder out my cigarette, and <laughs> minced, minced down that station and mixed with gay people when I found the places, because it was very difficult to find the places. And you stayed at the Regent Palace? Yeah, I stayed at the Regent Palace. And it was, it was, it was interesting. Um, and then I came back and tried to be normal, whatever normal is. So I lived in fear. Uh, so it was a Thursday night. My mum was uh, awake because what I used to do was I, I used to have to listen to her breathe. And if she was asleep, I, I, would, I would panic every single time because I didn't want to lose my mum. She was my life. And it was a, a fear that, thank you, it was a fear that I've always, always had. And one night it was pitch black and I, uh, I couldn't hear her breathe. 
And I went and leaned over the bed and she went, what are you doing? Yeah. Well, I <laughs> nearly dropped dead. I'll never forget that. Anyway, this Thursday night, she'd found a letter. She hadn't rooted. It had fallen out. A stupid me. It was something like, dear Peter, if you marry David, I'll kill myself. Love, Billy. It was a st- whatever it was. It was somebody I'd met him in London. <laughs> and it just happened to be Billy. <laughs> sorry. No, it wasn't. I'm just because you're there. So... Uh, she had the letter in hand and she said, what does it mean? And I said, it means I'm a homosexual. And she was physically ill and she had a breakdown. And um, we took her to hospital. And she, as, as she, before she left, she said, oh, uh, you'll have to leave the house. And then 10 minutes later, she said, I'm so apologetic. Yeah. But I can't, sorry, that I, I didn't mean to say that. She was in a terrible state. For three years after that, she cried herself to sleep every night of her life. Um, she couldn't cope with it. And watching the other day, um, everyone's talking about Jamie at the Empire. Mm. Uh, Jamie was there with his mother, Margaret. I know you two met him, and I met him. And Margaret was great. I don't blame my mother for not being great because no. it was a different generation yeah. and a different way. And all she thought about, which we t- talked about later on, was she wanted grandchildren, selfishly, and also the cruelty that you would have, the life you'd have. So that was it. She came out of hospital. Um, I then sent for an LP, which I've still got, of an American um, doctor who said about... Then I played that to her. And long story short, I went back to Dr. Lansley and uh, he said, there is a cure. And I volunteered to go for the cure for my mother in a way for myself, but I knew I couldn't be cured. I now knew what I was. Um, All I could put it is if I slept with a girl and we had sex, I just want her out that bed. If I'd slept with a guy, I want him to stay and wanted to spend mm. time with him and be with him. That, that was what the way it was. So I went for the treatment uh, to appease my mother, to appease the doctor, had no idea what I was going to, and when I got there to Diva Mental Institute, the loony bin, because it was a loony bin, that's what we knew it as, wasn't a mental institute. <coughs> Excuse me. And I was put in under a false name because I was a criminal. So I had to be. Yeah. I couldn't have gone in as Pete Price. I went in. As, and all I thought the whole time I was in there was, will I ever come out of here alive? And it was, it was psychological treatment from what I know of. No, as it wasn't well. just psychological. It was torture. Totally. No, it wasn't torture in the true sense of the word. It was mental torture, you mean? Um, well, it was going to be physical torture as well, right. So, in a nutshell, what happened was, and I'll clean it up for the radio, first of all, I had three days there <clears throat> with girls who were supposed to be mental, who'd had children 28 years ago and been put away because they weren't married. I had people breathing down my neck while I was trying to sleep at night. I lived in fear with... The, people who had mental health problems. It then came to the time of uh, the treatment and what the doctor did, uh, this psychiatrist, um, he had a tape recorder, Grundy TK20, always remember that, and basically would ask me questions about sexuality and what I did physically and use every graphic expression you could think, which lasted an hour. He then put me in a room without any windows and a nurse in charge. He asked me what I drank in those days. In those days, I drank bottles of Guinness. Um, he had a load of uh, dirty books, he called them. They were guys in uh, bathing costumes, that was it. So I had the tape for an hour, the dirty books, 
and I had to look at the books and listen to the tape. Halfway through the hour, he injected me. Oh, sorry, and I was drinking the Guinness. Halfway through the hour, he injected me, and I was physically sick, both ends. And I said, can I go to the toilet? No, just do it there. So I'm in the bed, lying in my own excrement and my own vomit. And that lasted an hour, an hour, an hour, an hour. They gave me no breaks at all. And after four days... They then talked about the electrodes. So they're going to put electrodes on my penis uh, so that if I got uh, sexually excited, I would get electric shock. How I was ever going to get sexually excited when I'd been lying in my own excrement for all these days um, and had nothing to eat and nothing to drink and was very, very poorly and wanted out and thought I was never going to be seen again. I then actually volunteered in. I said I want out. I mm -hmm. didn't think I was going to get away with it. I got away with it. Um, keeping the story short, a friend of mine picked me up. I went, lay in a bath for eight hours. Um, I was physically destroyed. My mother, bless her, never forgave me for walking out early. If she'd have known what they'd have done to me, which I never, ever told her, she no. took it to, I took it to the grave with her, um, she'd have killed herself. Well, that's, that's harrowing, that. I'm, I mean, have you met people who had a similar experience? Uh, well, they did a documentary, a thing called uh. Dark Secrets, uh, which I went publicly with. I went to a newspaper uh, reporter I knew who worked for The Independent. I told him the story. He laughed in my face. He laughed in my face. We started looking at the story. We went to West Cheshire Hospitals, was which it was, the missing huts where we were tortured, and it was tortured, there's no other way of putting it. Uh, I'm sure they did that, the Gestapo did that. Um, so they'd been taken down. By the way, after it, for five years, I could never go to Chester Zoo. I could mm. never go up that road. Um, and sorry, I forgot the end of the story before, I, uh, most important part of the story. I then woke up one day and said, enough is enough, I'm going to be me. And there was a great uh, gay club in uh, Manchester called the Rockingham, <coughs> Excuse me. And at the bar one night, there was a guy, and I'm not physically violent, as you know, but I tried to kill him. I actually tried to kill him. And it turned out he was a psychiatrist. So the man that put me through that torture was gay. So whether he was getting his rocks off watching me being tortured. And when the doorman found out, because they were going to beat me up, when the doorman found out what had happened... He got a slap. Um, so that was the end of the story. So then, from there on, I, be, I, I started being myself and helping other people. One thing that happened to me that absolutely freaked me out, Billy, years later, years later, in fact, only a few years ago, I met a man in the street called Roger, who is beautifully spoken, lives in Liverpool, and he apologised to me. He was... Um, he wasn't my male nurse, but he was a male nurse that had to help people through all this time of this uh, mental torture. So there is a gay nurse watching somebody being tortured for being gay, and he's got to be... I never even thought for one minute that the guy next to me could be gay as well. You know, and Roger said, I'd like to apologise on behalf of all other nurses. We had to be quiet, otherwise we'd have been sacked. I never thought that, and I've got a beautiful letter from Roger apologising, which was, wow. Well, it's hard to change subject now, but you have to. But I think it's good that people should know that as well. So Radio Merseyside, you were the first one, I think it was 69, wasn't it? The station opened in 67. Yep. I think you started with them in 69. 
Yeah. You, you, did you try and get a job with them beforehand? Because they came to you, didn't they? They came to me. No, I never came. I, I never even thought of going on radio. Never thought of going on radio. Never crossed my mind. Jim Black approached me, and they had a show called Never Mind the Price, uh, which was reviewing records. And in those days, you didn't have to pay when you reviewed the records. And I got five guineas for that. And then they doubled the show to an hour, called it twice the price, but never doubled me money. So um, that's how I started. And recorded me would never let me go out live, ever, ever, because they were frightened of me. But then you did what you were best at. You went out and started looking, not just interviewing anybody, you went out looking for really important people. Because I, obviously, obviously I, was, I was at the station from 71, and you were still there then. And I can remember myself actually saying to someone, how does Pete Price get all these people on? Because you were having really, really big names on. Well, don't forget, I was at the Shakespeare at that time. Yes. So I'd worked with a lot of stars, so I pulled in a lot of favours. Also, the agents would be great with me. Uh, Billy, there's a way... You have a phenomenal reputation in this country uh, as a broadcaster. And when you've got that reputation, and I'd got a reputation of being a nice person that mm. would do stuff and help other people. So, I I mean, I got knocked back a few times, but, I, I, I mean, Paul McCartney rang in one day, and Barbara Taylor was my producer then and she went Paul McCartney's on the phone I won't tell you the language you used off air and it was Paul just rang him because I'd met him the day before at Jim's house in Heswell so I just worked on it and also um, I just I just wanted to know them I mean when I was when I was gay and fighting my sexuality I went to uh, Danny LaRue's club uh, which was amazing. And I met Danny and, and his support act was Larry Grayson. And uh, another week I went was Ronnie Corbett. And I got to know these people and just, I told them, but I was honest. I get five guineas a week and it's a small show, but I'd love you to come on. And they, I think they loved it because I was refreshingly honest. Spike Milligan, that was, I mean, you know, to go into Ronnie Scott's club on his 10th anniversary and walk up to Spike and said, I'm nobody, uh, but I get five guineas a week. Can I interview you tomorrow? And he went, I like you. <laughs> Do you know what he did? He had a pint of beer. He said, have a pint of beer. I said, don't drink beer. And he went, threw it over his shoulder, all over the table behind him and poured a glass of wine. They laughed. I nearly died. And then went to his house. Always remember this. Nine Orm Court. Always at Notting Hill Gate. He was on the ground floor. The Bee Gees were on the next floor. Harry Seacombe was on the next floor, their offices, and Peter Sellers was in the basement. Never forget that. I went into the interview and I was in this room, this fabulous room with just a painting, a beautiful floor and a, gra and a grand piano. And he walked in. And then left me. Stop. <laughs> you know, and I'm there for another half hour. And I always remember my first question. I, I see you going to the um, the ma mansion house with the Lord Mayor today for lunch. I said, why? He said, I'm hungry. Hmm. And that was the standard of the questions. But that answers my question. It was because your contacts at the Shakespeare that you managed to get all some these huge names yeah, on. Yeah, yeah. I, was, I was very envious of some of those people you were getting to interview. Yeah. You know, but I, I was also a customer at the Shakespeare 
Fantastic, wonderful place. Would you say it was the best years of your life? Hap, without any shadow of a doubt. And there isn't a day goes by somebody doesn't mention it wherever I am in the world. It was built in 1880. If we'd have had that still standing in uh, the capital culture, that would be part of one of our iconic buildings. When it was a theatre, it was beautiful. Mary Lloyd played there. We had the boxes with the original gas lamps. We were the first people to serve duck with black cherry sauce. Always remember that. And we had some phenomenal acts on there. Phenomenal acts. You so, know. So why did the shaky come for you? Interesting. Um, uh, it was owned by Rob Lee and then George Silver took it over. George Remember Silver. George Silver, big, yeah. big man. Big man, 22 stone. With connections. Completely, but one of the richest men in the country. Bald, of course. Yeah, of course. Bald with a huge nose and, in fact is the baddie in The Man with the Golden Gun. Yeah. And was um, walking through the street one day and somebody said, uh, we'd like you in your film. Uh, sorry, in our film, the James Bond film. And he went, yes, I'd like to talk to you about that. And anyway, long story short, he did the film and he said, do you think I can have a party? I'd like to throw a party for you all. Nobody knew who he was. They just thought he was an actor. And he flew them all up. They all came to the Shakespeare and they walked in and went, oh, so that was it. So he'd heard about me um, and he wanted a personality to to change the style of the club. He'd take the club over. So he came down, always remember. And the night he was coming down, I had a bottle of champagne and some people to meet him and he never turned up. And I was really upset because it was really important to me. Uh, so I went to the Shakespeare the next day. He was in a meeting. I said, is he? I said, oh, is he? So I walked in and I went, you, do you know I had a bottle of champagne? Do you know how much money I had? And you tell me, you got that cheek, you Who do you think you are? He went, I'll be finished in a minute. I think we'll call you Mr. Personality. <laughs> That's how I got the job. That's how I got the job. But you know what they made me do? And this I loved. So I would go around every table. Hi. I'm Pete Price. You're Billy. Hi, nice to meet you. Hi, I'm Pete yeah. Price. Hello, Jonathan Brown. To every table. Yeah, well, you're working it, you see. Yeah. You're working the job. I mean, you weren't expected to yeah. do that. No, no, Th no. This no. was you yeah. doing it. But it's Liverpool. Yeah. So you start to get to know them. So there's a drink waiting for you. Well, I'm sorry. It only happened to me twice, but I had to stop it because I just never made it onto stage. I was legless. Absolutely legless. I nearly got sacked twice. I went on stage the first night in a pink velvet jacket, black shirt and white bow tie. I told four gags, I sang three songs and I was a star. A star was born. For three years after that, I had tables thrown at me, I was booed and I learned my trade. And it was a wonderful place, the Shakespeare. Mm. I mean, as well, uh, uh, you had, uh, uh, one of the things I mentioned, you had a lot of trouble with the, the, the stage, which which went into the floor. I mean, that was unique about the... I, I, I used to hire it for Christmas, uh, for, for one night each Christmas, to take my listeners. And I used to have a deal with them. If I packed the place, they let me have it for nothing because right. the bar staff would take it over. Yeah. The bar take, would yeah. take it over. Wonderful place. Even if you're up in the balcony... It was two balconies, wasn't it? It was still a three, wonderful place. Three, one was closed, You're, and there were, there were always big names. Yeah, and it was a, it was a brilliant. The presentation with the stage coming up out the floor, it was magnificent. There was only us, and the talk of the town in London had them electric stage, and it was incredible. But it kept going off, and it would go off at the most ridiculous things. And we had a, a guy called Oscar 
Who was one of the I last know, characters? I used to know Oscar's daughter. Anita. She used to go to Cavern, Anita, yeah. Anita worked with Oscar. And you never crossed Oscar because if you crossed Oscar, he would walk out and he'd just switch one switch and nobody knew how the lights worked. So you never crossed Oscar. But he, he, oh, that stage was a nightmare. It was, it just, there's a million stories about I know, the stage. I know. The Tommy, Tommy Cooper one oh, I like the best yeah. because uh, cause of his height. <laughs> yes. Basically, ladies and gentlemen, we set the stage up down at the basement. It would come to ground level for dancing and then up another eight foot for the stage. Tommy Cooper's stage was set and it just exploded. We had no... Uh, we couldn't get the stage up. Couldn't get the stage up. And I said, Tommy, we're going to do anyway. Oh, I think we're in trouble now. He said, I'll tell you what we do. He, <laughs> he said, have you got a ladder? Have, Get that ladder. And he did an hour walking up and down the ladder with tricks. And the place was in bulk and got a standing ovation at the top of the ladder. And by this time, where were you living? Uh, I bought my home. Uh, and I've had my home for over 40 years. And the reason I've left, I've kept this home is because when I look out of my lounge on the Wirral, I see the waterfront in Liverpool. And to me, it's a piece of living art. And people say, why do you live over the other side? I live over the other side because I look to this beautiful city and this iconic waterfront. When I was on the Empress of Canada, I only did three tri trips, but I know what the crew was like when we came to the mouth of the river. I'm getting upset now. It, it still does it to me. There's nothing like this waterfront, and I see this every day of my life. OK, should we take a break uh, and we'll find out what Pete did? He decided to leave the uh, shaky. My name's Billy Butler. My guest is Pete Price here on the Pete Price Show. And at the moment, we left him ruling Liverpool via the stage of the Shakespeare. You, you get an offer from Manchester to go to... What was it, Blighty's? Fagans. Fagans, Fagans yeah. Now, that, that is a hell of a move. No matter how much the money is, Liverpool and Manchester audience is totally different. Totally different, yeah. But I wanted to start moving on. Um, it's like you, Billy. You've moved on to places because you realise you can go stagnant. And I knew I had a problem with the Shakespeare. And this was the problem. I, If I had a hard night, and I didn't have many hard nights because I could either do as little or as much as I wanted, but like you, I'm a grafter. And I always finished off if I was struggling by singing This Is My Life. And I did it ridiculously over the top. And it always paralysed the place. And this one night, it didn't. And I went, it's time to move. And it was ser seriously that one song. I was offered the job and the owners of the um, uh, Fagans... Yeah, they, the, are, they own four consonants, 37 houses. and uh, <laughs> The Patakuses... <laughs> Right, George and, and um, um, oh, I can't believe I've forgotten her name, I know her so well. Bless them, but no, neither of them with us now. But George was a goat herder in uh, Cyprus and um, his wife was a waitress on the Wirral and they died leaving something like £60 million. Nobody gave them anything. They were phenomenal. And Georgina, uh, her, the daughter, is still one of my closest, closest friends. They've sold all the businesses. They own, finished up with the Valley Lodge. They finished up with uh, uh, Park park leisure yeah, they morning. did all those which i worked for and i did a lot of shows for them but i went but when i went there i went in my hot pants and all my outrageous gear and they weren't ready for me so i had to start again 
and it was really unusual. Um, and I worked with some phenomenal big names up there as well, but a totally different room. It's a big, flat room. Um, and I uh, worked with Scott Walker there, mm. which was one of the most exciting things ever, and I wasn't allowed to meet him. I wasn't allowed near him. I was the host. <clears throat> Excuse me, I was the host, and I wasn't allowed to meet him. So I booked a table and watched him at the front. So I introduced him and was sat on the table and stood, and he said, you're a wonderful audience. I said, I'm actually the compere, but I'm not allowed to meet you. <laughs> so I got to meet him after the show that night, which was great. And then you went back to the shaky. You worse than me with Radio Mesa and yeah, Radio City. Going, you went back to the shaky yeah, then. They made me an offer I couldn't refuse. It wasn't the same. Uh, and I went back once and topped the bill, which is the front cover of the album. That was the night I did, um, which was amazing. Um, but it was never the same. So it was time for me to go on the road. I realised I was missing out uh, because I was earning nice money and I was also in a comfort zone. You've been in that position where you've got to say enough is enough. It's like people in the soaps. They're, they're in the comfort zone, but they are actors and they want to get out. But go from sport. the safety of a stage yeah. at a resident yeah. club to doing an, an odd club every night. Yeah, yeah. It's a massive move. It was the worst move I ever made at the beginning because I was driving home from um, South Wales, breaking my heart, thinking, what have I done? Because I died on my backside because I couldn't understand the audience. I couldn't understand why they didn't. So I learnt my act. I learnt my act. And in those days, there was three clubs a night sometimes. So you could work hard. Um, and I, you know, I went to the northeast, died on my backside up there. And I used to say to them, I don't have to come this far. I can die at home. Then I went to Scotland, died on my backside up there. <laughs> but I learnt my trade. And yeah. then I started doing well. And earning decent money, you know, and getting around. But I missed my residency because it was the comfort zone. And it was an amazing comfort zone. But I'm glad I did it. I was doing, like a lot of comics, 70,000 miles a year. But yeah. well, one thing that when it was Reggie Book, when it came out, one thing that, that I noticed most of all was the number of times you were talking about driving from one city to another. Yeah. And you were always on your own. Always, always. Always on your own. And I thought to myself, this is a lonely man. He's going everywhere on his own. Where's the person that should be with him? Where's the person? Because I know Pete wants someone to, 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 to give his affection to. Mm -hmm. So where is he? There was, it was lots of one-night stands, but also I didn't want people with me in work. I, you know, I really didn't want people with me in work. The biggest mistake I ever made, and I'll tell this in a pot, a little nutshell, was taking Herbert my friend of 50 years with me to a gig and uh, a never gym. again, never again. Uh, went to Birmingham, walked in and I said, you've got to behave yourself. He said, of course I'll behave myself. Can I get this table wiped? I said, you're in a social club. <laughs> behave yourself. And you bought some bingo tickets. Oh, you bought 30 bingo tickets. Don't win. If you win, Herbert, they will boo the act. You are not, thank goodness he didn't win. Then the woman arrived with the cockles to the, 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 the fish thing. He bought the whole bag. So there's an alien audience now waiting for the comic. And he's just watching this man who's been sitting with the comic. And they want my blood. I went on stage and I turned it around. And I did really well. And next minute, there's a slow hand clap. And the audience had given me the slow hand clap. I get... Uh, in the car, didn't get paid. Driving home, I said, Herbert, I can't believe that. All that pain. And then a slam and clap. He said, he said, actually, that was me. He said, I've got my first appointment at eight and I needed to get home. <laughs> 
and, and he, as everybody knows, is one of the treasures of your life, Herbert. Absolutely. And it wasn't... Uh, and of many people's <clears throat> lives. Oh, yes, of course. He touched so many people. But it wasn't an easy relationship, and that's why it was good. You know, everyone thought we were an affair, and we weren't. Everybody thought we were an actual affair. We were the bro- he was the brother I never had, and we had a fallout. We had oh, three, yeah. three years we didn't speak. I can, I can remember being yeah. in one event when you had a fallout, right. and yeah. the ice, you, yeah. could, you, could, yeah. you could chip the ice between but th- you. That's why the relationship worked, and the friendship worked, and but... If he was in trouble or I was in trouble, he'd be there in a heartbeat and me from anywhere in the world. And I miss that man every day of my life. One contact that we do have, I think we mentioned this in the past before, a very good friend of mine from Rushworth and Drapers, Andy Stabach. She rang me at four o'clock this afternoon. Yeah. She's in a home now being looked after. That, yeah. She can't use the phone. She actually rang me today, Billy. I've been trying to get to see her. It's difficult because of all the COVID rules and everything. I'm so pleased. She always asks about you. Always ask about you. She was a window dresser, if you remember. Yeah, the Swith and Drapers. Yep. Lovely girl. Yep. Lovely girl. And she lived Just in a big house house in Hoylake, didn't she? She did indeed. Yeah. She did indeed. Lovely girl. She was, she's my oldest friend in the world. And she was a girl that I really, when I was young, I really did fancy. She was beautiful. I really, I, I was I was in love with Andy and we're still friends. And I worked for them in the Seychelles. She married Richard, a guy I went to school with. And they built the hotel in the Seychelles and I went over there. That's been written about working in the Seychelles, working with Princess Margaret in the audience and uh, uh, this prince uh, with a a scar on his face and a a monocle and uh, his butler came over and he went he used to go to she yeah that's the one (laughs) and he he flicked his fingers and he went my master would like to meet you now I went to beg your pardon okay now listen you're you're a master of self-publicity no, no, just let me finish oh, this. Sorry. No, 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 only because it's a lovely end to it. So it's a German prince came over, did the banging with the shoes. <laughs> I am a German prince. Don't ignore me. I said, yes, and I'm an English queen now. Off. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're a master of your own publicity. You always have been, and you think carefully about it as well. There's one thing I, I want to mention. You, you got this load of publicity, didn't you, for going to the police station and confessing you'd taken cocaine. True story. I know that, but that was thought about. You knew that if you went this and you just had a bit of cocaine, you're going to get the press for it. You're going to go put in jail and you're going to get plaudits for having the courage to go down and do it. That's something you thought about. That didn't happen. Billy, I will be very, very, very honest with you. You're normally right, but this time you're wrong. Ah. I'll tell you for why. I thought it will come back to haunt me one day. Well, no, no one does. Not one go with yeah, cocaine and get confessed yeah, straight you know, away. Because I'm so anti-drugs, I've always oh, been anti-drugs. So I was so anti-drugs because people can't wait, especially with social media, to have a go at you. That was not thought out. I genuinely went to the police station and and gave myself up. To which. They just couldn't stop laughing. I know that. And yeah. you came out of it well. What a brave, of, what a brave yeah. person Pete Price was. Yeah, but I promise you that was in case there was a backlash. Okay. The other one as well. Now, I, I, I'm very, very lucky. I interviewed Shirley Bassey once. And she never once told me that you were in the dressing room in her wardrobe. Hmm. No, in a shower. In a shower. Shower, yeah. <laughs> Hid in the shower. Charlie O'Neill was the manager. I went to pick the tickets up. You remember Charlie? Lovely man. Picked the tickets up and I went, she's not going to do an interview with me. 
I mean, who am I? So I went and hid in a shower. I'm hiding behind the shower curtain, terrified. I mean, I nearly wet myself and everything else because I was really frightened. She'd had a fallout with Serge, Serge, her husband at the time. Uh, She'd had a row with the the, the PR um, and, and they went. And um, I just thought, now's the time. And I just walked out and I genuinely said, I hate Barbara Streisand. And she used every four-letter word in the word. And I told her what I'd done. And I must so have you just walked out of Shirley Bassey's shower in her yeah. dressing room. In her dressing she room. She never screamed. She never screamed, no. She just, she just, when I said Shirley, when I said Barbara Streisand, I must oh, have no, caught I like the line, I like the, the line. Yeah, but I must have caught her that split second. And she held the show up um, to, to do to finish the interview, and we had big problems. We couldn't play it at Radio Merseyside for a while because Maynard Ferguson was in the background. So we had, had all this PRS. Yeah, PRS. But 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 I, I, I did answer that. She made yeah. a point of when she came on stage of saying. P. Price. I'm, P. Price. I'm so late. She, uh, well, Herbert and Herbert's mum and my mum were waiting outside. Where have you been, son? I've been with Shirley. Ah, oh, son. You do dream. You're daydreaming again. No, I've been with Shirley. Yeah, all right, love. All right. Got in the room. By the way, the dress. Do you remember that fabulous album, Some something, with the yellow dress walking yeah. along with a dress was hanging up? It was rotten. It was rotten because they have they can't get them cleaned or they couldn't get them cleaned. They had to wear them until they fell off them. And she walked on stage and it was there. The magic was there and everything was happening. And then she stopped the show. She said, "I'm sorry, we're late." It's uh, P. Price. Is it, where's P. Price? <laughs> Herbert's face was a picture. Yes. <laughs> My next guest is Pinocchio. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, now, as I said before, your, your name has been made mainly on the back of the phone-in, and it takes a special person to do a phone-in yep. in Liverpool, especially in Liverpool, but by the same token, you couldn't wish to do for a better place to do a phone-in than Liverpool yep. because of the people who respond. Yep. As you know from Hold Your Plums, we couldn't have got those yep. people anywhere yep. else. Yep. And it was the same with the phone-in with you. It was the people who came on and how you reacted to them, of course. How you and I mean, I, I, I've I've done it for a while myself, and there's certainly there's certainly times, Peter, when you know it's right to lose your temper, because you know the audience out there will be impressed by it, yeah, yeah. or you know, so it, you don't lose your temper sometimes because you have lost your temper. You know, it's a good place to lose me temper, and it sound good as it, and, and you're there to do that. You do that to broadcast, and. You, you you could say something like being called lizard and tear it into a craze, you know. And uh, when that banner went up at the f- cup final about P. Price, oh. you know, everybody else was shocked. You would have been delighted. Uh, Billy, I was absolutely horrified. Oh, uh, Billy, I was absolutely horrified. It's the one word I hate. Oh, let's see what you mean. The C word. And thank goodness my mother wasn't alive yeah. because that would have... I embraced it, and I'll tell you why I embraced it. Bo Selector um, used to do Craig... I know him, yeah. 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 <clears throat> and he destroyed his career because he didn't accept Bo Selector. I learned from that. I also learned that if I didn't embrace it, the poster, 
Um, I, I, I didn't know how else to deal with it, but it made me cringe. I promise you it made okay. me cringe. Uh, I, the only thing is, the lads, when they came to my house, uh, came to my house, when they came to my radio show, found them, suddenly one of them's died. They used to do books of posters. And I said, why me, lads? And they went, oh, pricey, we're living night, you know, like, <laughs> we're in the pub doing the post, you know, and we're using that word, you know. And we said, who's the biggest in Liverpool? He went, everyone said you. And that's how he got on the poster. And then the next year, Pete Price is still... And, I know, yeah. I know. Uh, I mean, I laughed my head off. Yeah. Well, like I most laughed of Liverpool head off nervously, did. yes. <clears throat> okay, I've got a little clip here for one of your phoners. Would you play the one about uh, culture? If you could. I'm a black Muslim, you see, Pete. No, you're not. You've changed the subject. You said you were coming on to talk about Catholic culture. She offered that. No, 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 no. You just don't make stuff up and come out of midair. You want to talk about the Catholic culture. All right, well... I wanted to speak to you, Pete, about uh, the capital of culture money, you see. The capital of culture money? Yeah. Right. You see, we won that, you see, Pete, to do with cultures, didn't we? Say again? We won that, we, the capital of culture, a celebration of all the different types of cultures in Liverpool. We won the title, yes. You see, Pete, and I just don't see how pave, what making new pavements has got to do with culture. <laughs> Well, unfortunately, we have to build the city that was falling apart. So we have to give pavements and roads because they're wearing down. And we've had to put new drains in because they're also wearing down because it's been 100 years since they've been changed. So unfortunately, also, we're building a brand new, largest ever shopping mall in Europe, which needs water, needs what? Well, once it's up and running... You see, I don't get it because I understand about drains and some types of lack maintenance and that, but lack town, the big mall and that, the, the places where people of culture live, I don't, there's not many changes, well, you see, Pete. The, uh, well, because it's not 2008 yet. And the people. 2006. The culture well, of people. Well, if you'd have gone to the launch of, and in fact there is going to be a public meeting at the beginning of December so everybody can go along and ask questions, but if you went to the launch and saw some of the culture things that they have arranged and see the booklet of just 20%. No, Pete, they brought that money back from us. They said you won the award. Hang on. What money, by the way? Where's the, what money are you talking about? The fund, the capital what of culture. There's no fund. Do you get your money when you... No, you don't. No, you don't. It's it's all the, no, it's not. It's the investment that comes in. No, I think it's terrible that people should get to decide what, what the money gets spent on, Pete. Me and a couple of my friends, Gemma and Sasha, found this very, very, very... I'm just stressed, Pete. Oh, I'm just very stressed about the whole... stupid. Grow up, you child. No, you see, you get a life. No, go away, you stupid little boy. Don't speak to me like that. I'll speak to you. You stupid child. I'm stressed. I'm stressed about the gavel and culture. Stress about making a life for yourself, you saddo. No, Pete, you can't talk to me like that. I just did. Look, watch me lips. The words are coming out my mouth. You saddo. I'm not no saddo. You are a saddo. No, you're the... about the gavel and me and my mate, no. you got your two name checks in, you got your two name checks in, so that's great. Me and my mate, me and my mate. You're just acting childish now, Peter. Because I'd like pathetic. to have an adult conversation. Because you're pathetic. No, you're pathetic, Peter. I've just come on to have a conversation. About you're, trains. You're talking down to me. I'm not talking down to you at all, that must, must be in your head. You only speak nice to old ladies, Peter. Is that right? Well, you're an old lady because you're acting like an old woman, you stupid prat. No, you're acting a bit childish. Oh, you're a prat. Peter. You're a prat. 
And you know what I'm... I'm stressed about Cabal culture. I'm really stressed. Police horses as well, Pete. That's another thing. The what? The police horses. What about the police horses? That gets me stressed as well. Oh, well, let's hope one of them poos on you from a great height when no, you're actually Peter. falling down the floor. I hope the horse poos on you all over your head, you plastic. You've just been listening to the gentleman's voted the world's greatest phone-in <laughs> expert, and he's won, he's won awards for phone-ins for many, many years. I thought, I mean, one thing I do know, Peter, when I listen to it, you know your job. I mean, I, I hear people bring the council up, I hear people bring politics up, I, I hear people bring certain things up, and you do know about them. Now, I thought that you were having a really decent conversation with that lad, you know, because you showed you knew about the event and what they were going to do with the money, all of a sudden you snapped. Yeah, because he just came on to get his name checked. No, he didn't. He, you oh, didn't, yes, you didn't he did. let him finish. No, I didn't have to. As soon as they get the name checked, we know that they are set up. First of all, he came on as a, a black Muslim, and then but then, totally then left that, that dropped straight yeah, away. He dropped that straight. Yeah. So we now but, know he's a wind up. Well, that's where the experience came. He said, "We're not talking about that." Yeah. Here's the subject yeah. you said you'd phone but me then, about. As soon as he got the name check. Then I realise he's completely messing about. So when they get the name check, what people didn't know was we had the most amazing thing on Google. We used to have a thing called Google Alert, and we knew if there was campaigns against me that night from all over the world, we had this... uh, in fact, Jonathan was the one that set it up. Um, and it was incredible. And you say, well, tonight, Peter, they're going to be talking about Billy Butler. And it's incredible. So I I, I tell you what, I can't believe what I get away with years ago. That's why I had to give up the phone. And I couldn't do that. OK. Now, no, surely the biggest accolade of all is that you're going to have a play written about you. We've got a few comments on that, haven't we? Yeah. Price is dead. Oh, oh no. no. Oh, no. Oh, God. Oh, oh God, Pete Price. And he owes me a telly, you know. <laughs> never. You'll never say. Why's that? It's just part of the furniture. Do you know who Pete Price is? No. no. He's a lizard. He's a lizard? Why is he a lizard? What just do you think? this. Do you know who Pete Price is? Can you on with your day? My husband loves him. My husband loves him? Yeah. He thinks he's very funny, yeah. He's funny? He is funny. Was funny. God bless his soul. I mean, it's not nice when someone dies, but I don't know who it is. Who is it? Just going to Google him. Who? Pete Price? Him? Yeah? If someone was to tell you Pete Price is dead. Wouldn't mean a thing to me, girl. Wouldn't mean nothing. Would you you not, like, go in the pub and have a shot? Not at all, not at all, no. no. I'd forget it two seconds later, you know. As soon as he comes on the radio, I turn him off. (laughs) I do not like him. Why don't you like him? I just don't like his attitude and his foul. You know, he's a a phony. No no real opinion on on him at all, you know. I mean, I'd rather not be in his company, no. Do you know my nan called him once and he cut her off? I know. Do you think he's had heart attack from the stress? I don't. I wouldn't be surprised if someone got hold of him. <laughs> don't get too upset. Pete Price is dead. <laughs> he's like me. Anyway, that, that was uh, that was Leanne going around town uh, pretending Pete Price was dead, and, and that's the reaction she got. And <coughs> I was saying to Leslie earlier on, you would not have changed the second of that interview, would you? No, not a second. I was shocked when she told me about the story. When she first said to me, I've got a play, I've got something we talked about, I was actually shocked. Four of my friends did not like it one little bit. 
one that a lot of my friends didn't like it, but four of my friends really didn't like it. And that took a bit, it's incredibly flattering, but it took a lot of getting used to. I mean, now the play is not on. Uh, the story is, will P. Price live long enough to see P. Price is dead? Which <laughs> <laughs> is... Well, I was very flattered and very flattered to be in it. And we had four performances and they loved it. And we were doing phenomenal business and then lost it because of the pandemic. Uh, the set is still there. Uh, Kevin still hasn't dismissed the fact that we might come back. But the problem is, as you know, with theatres, there is so much backlog and they have to have stuff that they guarantee to make money with, like the, the Christmas show they've done this year. They've stretched it uh, to make money, and, and rightly so. So, But uh, we had it on and a couple of my friends saw it and I've got a video of it. So I've got my own personal video of it. Well, I mean, obviously, you don't win as many awards as you've got unless you know your job. You're back with us here on Liverpool Live, and we're delighted with that. And I can understand you've explained why you don't want to do a phone-in anymore, because there's so many things you just cannot say or no. do anymore. No. So it would be a nightmare doing a phone-in now. If I started now, Billy, and did that as my first phone call, I'd be sacked. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's why it doesn't happen anymore on radio. No. no. So, have you now reached... I mean, there's, there's a quote here I got from somebody. You were introduced as uh, Peter Price, known locally, nationally and internationally. Mm -hmm. That was a quote. So, are you happy now? Is, have you reached your peak or is there more you want to do? No, I'm doing nice bits of telly now, but no, I've never wanted to be a big star. I wanted to when Bob Monkhouse wrote that series, Comedy Connection, which yeah. never happened. And that was a, a horrendous time in my life. That's another hour story, that. That was a horrendous time. Um, I'm glad I didn't become famous, famous, because I've reinvented myself over and over yeah. again. And like Billy Butler, I'm still here and I'm still making a living. And I'm still being respected. But the difference between me and Billy Butler is I am Marmite. They either <laughs> like or hate me. There ain't nothing in between. <laughs> don't, don't forget, I actually, I, I actually came second in the most hated DJ in the Echo and also came, sorry, I came first in the most hated DJ, sorry, and second in the most liked DJ oh, in the right. Echo. <laughs> in the same year, you know. There we are. Now we've got something like 50 podcasts. So why not subscribe? We'd love you to spend time. And it could be on your phone, so you can listen anytime you want. Subscribe, and you're part of the family. Liverpool Live.